You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to fellowship uh, with you uh, by virtue of what your son Jesus has done for us. And Lord, help us today better understand uh, who Jesus is and what exactly he has done for us by his cross and resurrection and uh, what it means for our lives even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, That's a really good problem to have. I hope you I hope you understand that. Uh, I look at church statistics every once in a while, and uh, I was talking to a friend who's in ministry, and uh, he is excited if there's one baptism in his church uh, a year, and um, and the joy here at the Advent is uh, not only do uh, our families take seriously uh, God's c- command to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, but uh, indeed we have adults that come to faith and, and are baptized in the midst of our congregation. So that's a real blessing um, to be uh, a part of that uh, and really glad that they're here. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's funny to me because people will often ask, does the baby noise bother you? And uh, the answer to that is no. Uh, now, it may be because I'm, I'm coming out of that stage of life with my own children and I've just acclimated um, but, uh, if you really want to throw me off, if I'm preaching a sermon that you don't particularly care for, get someone's hearing aid to go off. Uh, that actually is what gets me. Um, and I can't help but, uh, but to zone in, uh, on that. Or there used to be a guy and he hasn't been here in a while, but he'd come maybe once every couple months and he'd sit right there on one of the side benches, or as we would say, the transept pews, uh, over there. And he would repeat everything that I said, and he was about a half a line in front of me, or behind me, rather, and trying to get through that, because I don't preach from a manuscript, I preach from an outline, basically, and so uh, you just kind of have to, to, to push forward, so I'm convinced he's a plant from the Baptists, uh, but, but who knows. Okay, well, today we're talking about what does it mean that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, Uh, And this uh, is of a particular interest to us in the South and uh, I think in Birmingham because of a controversy that really bubbled up in the 1980s that didn't really involve uh, Anglicans or Presbyterians so much, although at its root, the Presbyterians were the ones at fault for it. Uh, But it really was a conversation that was happening amongst who we would call dispensationalists. Now, dispensationalists are people, uh, if... uh, that have you ever read Left Behind? Or you hear those are the dispensationalists uh, and believe that that God speaks in in there are different dispensations uh, throughout history and in this dispensation of grace and what they say is a free grace that um, you can know Jesus as Savior but not necessarily as Lord and you'll get into heaven but just by the skin of your teeth. Now, um, this is really, as I said before, an argument that was taking place amongst the Wesleyans, people who followed John Wesley, because John Wesley had an understanding, and it was called Wesley's Doctrine of Perfection. Wesley never thought that you could be a perfect human being. Right? It wasn't that, that he thought you'd wake up one day and you'd be like, 
Oh, it wasn't like that at all. But what Wesley did say is that you could get to a place in your Christian life where your heart was so overwhelmed by God's love that you basically would do what God wanted all of the time. Um, So if I, as wonderful and as much as I respect John Wesley, I would probably sit the dear brother down with Romans 7 and say, let's talk about this. What does this look like? So it was really within, within those uh, areas, but it started to creep in into uh, our own understanding, and that is that there were basically two stages of Christianity, or two types of Christians. There were those who were saved, and there were those who were saved and followed after the Lord Jesus. Both Christians, but two different kinds. And so we, would, we develop vocabulary for this. I don't know if you've ever heard people say, well, they're a carnal Christian. Or uh, they, uh, uh, they know Jesus, uh, but their, their lives really don't reflect uh, knowing Jesus. But they're still uh, knowing uh, Jesus. But rather than get mired in, in the debate, I want to talk about what that means for you and for me in, uh, in our own lives and in the context of our congregation. And so I need this to be a little bit interactive this morning. So I know that this space doesn't exactly lend itself to being personal and warm, uh, nor does the uh, culture of our congregation sometimes. But I really want us to talk about this and to tease it out, and I want to hear from you. So I'll give you some leading questions. What is the most often used appellation for Jesus in the New Testament? What is he most often referred to as? Christ. Uh, Warren, extra wafer for you next week. Uh, So yes, he's more often than not referred to as the Christ, the Messiah, the one that has come to save Right? As Savior, he, he's come into the world uh, to reconcile the world to himself and to make us children of God by his cross and his resurrection. And what's the second most used word? What's the title of this class? Lord, yeah. So, uh, and what does it mean? I think that we get Jesus as Savior pretty well squared away here at the Advent. Um, the understanding of Jesus saving you from sin and death and establishing you in a relationship with your heavenly father and that you've, he's won eternity for you. I think that we have a pretty good handle on that. If you don't have a good handle on that, I expect you to call me this week and I will take you out to lunch and I'll talk to you about Jesus as savior. But what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? He's the one we follow Right? There's a sense in which Christ is an office, but Lord is an office. So if you said, what is Jesus Lord of? What might you say? Everything. Right? He's Lord of the universe. He's, there's king language uh, wrapped up in this. Uh, and if he's Lord of the universe, as Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, would say, then there's not one square inch of this world that doesn't belong to him. Everything is his. And so that means whether it's uh, he's God is not a deist where he kind of winds up the world and and lets it go. And and when things kind of go askew, he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and say, yeah, sorry about that. But actually, he's intimately involved. And if he's that intimately involved, he's also intimately involved in our lives and he's Lord of our lives. And we heard that this morning 
in uh, our gospel reading uh, where um, in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, as Jesus said these things, this is verse 27 in chapter 11. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus could have just as easily, and of all days, all Saints Sunday, that's a great passage to preach on. Jesus, God, doesn't have grandchildren. Right? Because this person is actually saying something. Who is, who is this woman saying is blessed? Who nursed Jesus? Mary. Right? Blessed is she. And, and rather than saying, yeah, she's pretty great. Jesus says, actually, actually, blessed is the one who hears my word and keeps it. He's not denigrating his mother. But what he's saying is that God is interacting with human beings at a very personal level, and in a one-on-one way. And you're not made a child of God or put into a relationship with God simply by virtue of who you're born to. And I think that that is, uh, we were, I was talking with some friends the other night. Uh, Billy and Ruth Graham had multiple children, and those children had multiple children. And so if you run in Christian pastor circles wrong enough, long enough, you're going to run into a Graham. Right? And you end up going to be friending them. So when you get a group of pastors in a room, inevitably we all know somebody in the Graham family, if not multiple people. And uh, we were talking about how much of a mixed bag the Grahams are. That, in fact, on one hand, uh, you have one Graham grandchild uh, who has made it his ministry uh, to uh, call the church to repentance and to own up to its... Uh, uh, to its uh, abuse and toleration uh, regarding issues around sex. So pastors who take advantage of their position, take advantage of parishioners, uh, and, and people who uh, let abuse go unchecked. And then you have another grandchild who actually is guilty of those things. Now, I think that you, would, you might say, but surely... Uh, Billy and uh, Ruth Graham's children and grandchildren, surely by virtue of their genetic makeup, have to be Christians. But guess what? The Grahams are as lost as anybody until they're found by Jesus Christ. Now, statistically, there is a leg up to having Christian parents in the home. In fact, the big statistic is of kids who leave high school and go off to college. Do you know what the single greatest factor is and whether or not those kids maintain the Christian faith through college and into adulthood? Dad. Dad. Certainly helps with moms, but if dad is engaged as well, that makes all the difference in the world. And that's not just dad going to church. That's actually dad engaging in spiritual conversations and discipling uh, his children. That that seems to be the thing that really makes uh, a huge difference. And yet, uh, and yet uh, just because you have Christian parents doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Jesus is saying that here. You know, it's great. My mother's great. She is uh, due an incredible amount of respect, and in many ways you could say that Mary was the first Christian. 
Uh, but, uh, but more than that is the person that I've called into fellowship with me and has responded to that and now is living life under the authority of my word. So, Jesus as Lord means, as Diane reminded us, that uh, we follow after him, that that he is uh, a part of uh, our lives. Now, the other side would say that would speak of carnal Christians uh, echoing John Wesley, that, that you become a Christian and then at some point later on in your life, you might be made into a super Christian. Right, that, that you are, that then you're, you're going to say, you know, now I'm really serious. And I kind of, even though I grew up in Episcopalian, um, you know, our church was, I mean, Episcopalians almost never have vacation Bible school because they don't have enough kids to have vacation Bible school. So we were always farmed out to other places. And so I, I, I remembered this, uh, but I grew up thinking that, that there was, I sort of drew a division between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And so I really grew up knowing Jesus as Savior for most of my life, but it wasn't until I was in the fifth grade where I really made a commitment and understood that, excuse me, that he was Lord. And that was wrong of me to divide because actually it was that point in fifth grade where I actually understood who Jesus Christ was. Now, that doesn't mean that after I became a Christian and understood that he's Savior and Lord, that my life was all sunshine and lollipops and I followed him with complete and total obedience in my life. In fact, my life still looks a lot like Romans chapter 7, where before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought I was a pretty good person. I mean, this is a little bit like a marriage relationship, right? This is what a life of obedience looks like. When Malorn and I got married, I thought I was pretty awesome. I thought she'd really landed a catch with me. And so uh, I, um, I was a student at Oxford at the time when we became engaged and finished up over there. And then we got married and I went into uh, ordained ministry and everybody kind of fell over themselves in Beaufort of, oh, the cute young couple. And, and isn't he so wonderful and faithful? And oh, he's just the best. And I could just see behind Lauren's face as she smiled and nodded her head is, you don't live with him. Uh, because I thought that I was a really great person until I got married. And this is why Paul talks in Ephesians about washing one another with the word in marriage. And that's not a sensual thing that Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is the same experience that maybe you had as a child. I certainly did being one of three boys where basically first thing in the morning, my mother would give us breakfast and then she would say, get out. Get out of the house and do not come back until six o'clock. I don't care what you do, just go. And so we would. And then we'd come back at six o'clock. And the very first thing my mother would say was, get in the bathtub. And we would go and I'd get in the bathtub. And as I lowered myself into the bathtub, all of those scrapes and bruises and cuts that I had accumulated throughout the day, which I was blissfully unaware of, became very real and apparent to me when I got into the bathtub. That's what marriage does. It makes us aware of all the cuts and scrapes and bruises in our own lives, and it makes us feel very uncomfortable. And even in marriage sometimes, well, I'm kind of off on a rabbit trail, but I'll circle back. This is important. 
it often causes us to pull back in marriage to, and keep our spouse at, at arm's length. And yet Jesus says, and Paul echoes this, that this is actually the most important and significant thing that could happen in your life. This is actually what marriage is for. It's iron sharpening iron. And it's very easy to get to a place of uh, difficulty and do what I did, where Lauren was giving me a hard time about something, some habit that I had, or I don't even know what it was. And, uh, and I looked at her and I said, you know, my life <clears throat> would just, you know, our marriage would be so much better if you were just more like me. And, um, and of course, that's not true. And this iron sharpening iron that the Old Testament talks about um, is, you know, iron sharpening iron is not just this sort of nice molding. What is it? It's ding, ding, ding. It's hammer and tongs. And yet you're being fashioned into what you're meant to be fashioned into. Now, why do I say all that? Because Paul tells us, and Jesus even alludes to this, that the closest thing that we have on earth to tell us what our relationship with Jesus should look like is marriage. And so when we get into a relationship with Jesus, there is this propensity to start to keep him at arm's length and to even fall into the trap of saying, you know, Jesus, this relationship would be a whole lot better if you were more like me. And so I'll even hear people begin to describe God and they'll say things like, I've always thought of God as... And it starts to sound a whole lot like them. And it's amazing to me how God agrees with everything that they hold dear. That God is in no way upsetting their life when in fact the promise uh, of God's word is that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, your life is going to get upset. And you are going to change. And so I really respect those people who come to me and say, I want to be a Christian. I acknowledge Jesus is who he said he is. And I don't, there are some new statistics that came out, and I'm actually going to use them next week in Sunday school. <clears throat> so it'll be fun about people who have really never grown up in the church and people who grew up in the church but left because they just got tired of it. That it's something like 65% of those people believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Like that's not an issue for them. I agree, I agree Jesus is who he, sa- who he says, but what I'm afraid of is if I really enter into a relationship with him, what does that mean for my life? I talked to one guy who said, Andrew, I really want to go after the Lord Jesus and I want to follow after him and give myself wholly over to him, but I'm afraid what will happen in my marriage. If he entered into a full relationship with Jesus, he knew that in fact, that might mean the end of his marriage. He really was beginning to grapple with the implications of being in a relationship with Jesus. Because this is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm only going uh, to read uh, one verse, and that's 18. Uh, I would encourage you to read all of chapter 3 because it's so great. Uh, but Paul says this, And we all with unveiled face, he's talking about Moses, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So how does Paul describe the Christian life? 
We're being transformed. We're changing. And what does that change look like when we come under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Again, it's not a two-step process. So what I would say is the person who says, oh, of course, Jesus is Savior. And I'll often ask them, how do you know that you've been reconciled with God? And they say, well, I, when I was 15 years old, I, I prayed a prayer at camp. And, uh, and, so, uh, and then they end up talking a little bit more. And I even heard one guy say, well, I prayed the prayer, so God is obligated to let me into heaven. It's this sort of weird reverse, uh, it's a works-based righteousness that's coming at it from an evangelical direction. Well, what gets you in heaven? Well, I prayed the prayer. Or what the Christian would say is, what gets me into heaven is Jesus Christ. That's who gets me into heaven, that he's ransomed me, he's saved me, and I'm now in a relationship with him, and I fall under his lordship. It's all part and parcel. It's all one and the same. It, it, can't be, it can't be separated. And I think probably the greatest mark of the Christian is the difficulty that we experience in living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because you actually do want to live under his lordship. I want to know. So that's why I don't get all bent out of shape when people come in and say, um, you know, I was thinking about, I'll just use myself as an example. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking about transferring uh, as an undergrad and I went to go see my advisor over it and it was for Christian reasons. I thought that maybe I needed to be in a Christian university and, and not in, um, in the pagan world of the University of Virginia, which turned out to be, looking back, one of the most Christian places you could have been. And so I went to see my advisor and I'm, I'm just struggling with all of this. What does God want me to do? And he said, Andrew, do you think that Jesus is Lord here in Charlottesville? Yes. Do you think that he's Lord at these other schools that you're looking at? Yes. And he said, then you really can't go wrong, can you? He wasn't dismissing me. What he was acknowledging is one... It's really good for you to struggle, even if you think it's the most mundane of things. I mean, I know people that actually pray over what they're going to wear in the morning. I might have something to say to that, but uh, I appreciate the fact that, that they are trying to walk so in tune with the Lord that they really are, are praying uh, about that stuff. Something that, that I think is the, the, the most miraculous that God works in my life is when I lose something and I pray, Lord, help me find this. Do you all do that? And guess what? It, all, it works, <laughs> right? It, so God actually does care about that kind of stuff. Uh, he doesn't, I don't think, put it on the priority of, um, you know, uh, hunger and world peace. But uh, nonetheless, he's able. But at the same time, it's that struggle of wanting to live under the lordship of Christ that I think marks out the Christian. It doesn't mean that you do it perfectly, but you do begin to think, what does my life look like in light of who Jesus Christ is and what he's, uh, what he's done for me and the claim that he has on my life? So we do have have uh, passages like the one we had this morning uh, and any other uh, number of them that say, Follow me. Uh, it's not, uh, don't just be hearers of the word, uh, but doers uh, of the word. 
And so the Christian life is marked by this struggle of what it means to have Jesus as both Savior and Lord, and the two cannot be separated. And the work of the, the fancy word for this that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians is sanctification. And that is being molded more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? And how does that happen? Well, Paul tells us, tells us well, ask the, well, who is it that does this work in our lives? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Because I think in a lot of Christian circles, there's this idea of if you're going to really get sanctification underway in your life, you have to start doing something. And so they'll preach the free gospel of grace that you've been justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a free gift. And all you have to do is say yes and receive it and appropriate it for yourself. And then you do that, and, they, and then they say, now here's sanctification with a list of things that you have to do. In fact, what we see is that when the Spirit comes and takes up residence within you, He motivates you and pushes you more and more into the likeness of Christ. And if you're a real Christian, you should be saying to yourself right now, well, Andrew, I hear that, but I don't feel it, and I don't think I look it. In fact, if anything, going back to the whole marriage comparison... I feel like maybe I'm a bad Christian. Well, in the first instance, that's true. And that's a good thing. But in the second, we can't inspect our own fruit. It's impossible. Spiritually speaking, coming more and more to grips with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, which is a great working definition of sanctification, in our own lives and being captivated by him, we have a hard time seeing it in the same way that you and I look in the mirror and we still think we look the same as we did in college. Or have you ever gone uh, to a family reunion? This probably doesn't happen anymore, uh, but, uh, you know, Aunt Florence comes up to you and says, oh, how you've grown. And you think, oh, well, she's able to see the comparison from one year to the next in the same way that when you go to your high school reunion, you start looking at all the people and you start thinking, man, I look good. <laughs> right? You actually have a really hard time uh, gauging. Uh, if you can't gauge your own aging process, how much more difficult is it to gauge God's work uh, within your life. And in fact, Jesus says that the mark of a real believer is that the left hand won't know what the right hand is doing. And so actually God working in your life produces spiritual amnesia in the right sense. And I remember I preached a sermon in in, uh, Beaufort, I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I preached it. And about three weeks later, this lady came out of church and she said, I want you to know that you preached this sermon. And then when I came out in the receiving line, you said this to me. And as a result of it, I've decided to sell my house and move to Beaufort, South Carolina full time. I looked at this lady and thought, she is crazy. I never said that. And I never would have counseled something so extreme. But then upon further reflection, 
It's not that I remembered saying those things or doing those things, but I think I did. That actually I had, the left hand didn't know what the right hand is doing. When I was dating Lauren and when I was at Oxford, uh, Lauren was completely and intentionally uh, disdainful of time zones. Uh, so she just called me whenever she wanted, and, uh, which was always a bad time for me uh, in the middle of the night. And, um, and so uh, I was really struggling with whether or not to ask her uh, to marry me uh, for various and sundry reasons. I wanted to, but, you know, I was just kind of hemming and hawing about it. So I went to go see Michael Green. Not for this purpose, but we were talking about a mission that we were going to do down in the south of England. And, uh, and while we were talking, Michael Green uh, scooted his chair over very quickly. Michael's preached here. Uh, he's now with the Lord. But Michael scooted over his chair very quickly, and he put both his hands on my knees and looked at me square in the eyes. He said, Andrew, the important thing about marriage is that you want them to be your best friend and a partner in ministry, and you're plowing in the same direction. And then we went back to talking about who was going to wear the bunny costume in Plymouth and hand out tracks uh, <clears throat> down there. It turned out to be a guy who didn't want to do it, but we made him do it anyway. And so I asked Lauren to marry me. And the next time I saw Michael, I said, hey, I asked Lauren to marry me. He said, good on you. And I said, and I, I want to thank you for pushing me over the edge on that. And he said, I did not. And I said, well, you said this to me. No, I didn't. I said, I was there. You said it to me. But in the same way, I, it was one of those moments where actually God was working through Michael and he spoke a word to me that was, and it wasn't like a weird mystical experience, but actually God using his people in a left-handed manner in order to speak his word and truth into our lives. And so if you're wondering, in fact, um, if you're doing something and you think it's super spiritual, be careful that you're not doing it in order to draw attention, attention to yourself and to get accolades for yourself. I mean, let's go back to marriage again. Lauren was uh, gone one day and the house was a bit of a mess and I decided to come home early from work and it looked awesome. I mean, I really, really did a great job. And, uh, and she came in the house and gave me a kiss and and I'm sort of, you know, look around, look around. And, and, uh, and she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that wasn't good enough for me. So I kind of pushed her. I was like, did you see the bathrooms? And she's like, yeah, yeah, they, they look nice. And I was like, but I also see the sort of, it looked like Augusta, kind of a cross cut on the carpet. It was really, and she said, she said oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that too. And, and I said, well, I, I, I took off early from work. And she said, and you did a really great job. There's your reward. Right, where Jesus said, do those things in secret so that people might give glory to your Father in heaven. For if they acknowledge it in this world, that's your reward. You got it. Hooray for you. You did it. And so if you're at a point, I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't strive to do those things and to love our husbands and wives and to love our neighbors. Absolutely, uh, we do those things. And sometimes we do them simply because we're called to do them. And that's a Christian thing too. Doing the right thing, doing the faithful thing, having to put our foot down, even when it's really unpopular, whether that be in our family or in our culture and say, we're just not going to do that because that's not God's call on our lives. Of course we do that. 
But we don't do it to draw attention to ourselves, and we don't do it to get the accolades of, of those uh, around us. And so let's not make the false dichotomy between saying that, well, there are people who can have Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. And it's not a two-step salvation, but it's all one in the same. When we come to Jesus, we come to Jesus. And he takes all of our lives. And just as he looks all over this world and says, there's not a square inch that doesn't belong to me, he looks at our lives and says, you're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. Take my burden upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, we're all carrying something. Something is guiding us in our lives. And in the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. And so for us uh, and for our house, I pray that we say we will serve the Lord. Questions, comments, concerns? In the back, Louise. Yeah, um, Paul Walker asked me one time, how are things going? And I said, things stink, so God must be doing something. Um, that, that we trust that, that God is, is into it. But I think, too, that one of the things that happens in, in a relationship with Jesus is he does, by his spirit, begin to conform our will more like his. So because the Bible uses it, I use it a lot. So, again, going back to marriage... Um, I remember when uh, Lauren and I were dating, we got in the car, and this is back when you had a, a, a Walkman CD player and you plugged it in the car lighter. Do y'all, do y'all remember that? Uh, my, kids, my kids called them, uh, they found some CDs, and they're like, oh, these are old-fashioned. like, what? Um, so, um, but we were in the car, and the CD was in there, and some, uh, some guy friends jumped in, and I, I turned the ignition, and on came the most obnoxious top 40 girl pop song. It wasn't Britney Spears, but it was something like that. And every guy, and it was just blaring. And every guy just looked at me in the driver's seat and I just sort of shrugged my shoulders. Now, what happened? I started dating Lauren, right? I was falling in love with her. And so all of a sudden, the things that she liked, I began to like. And it began to have an effect on my will. And in the same way, we find that Jesus begins to work in our lives and we begin to love those things which he loves and to disdain those things which he disdains because we're in relationship with him. Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, even as I pray now, uh, one of the things that comes to mind uh, is uh, what about those people that we really love um, that seem to know that Jesus is Savior, but their lives don't uh, reflect it. In fact, their lives ref reflect complete and total rebellion. Lord, we, we don't know the state of people's hearts, and so we pray that you would come and comfort us, uh, knowing that the seeds of the gospel have been sown into their lives, 
And Lord, that they would turn to you and live and walk in your ways. That Lord, that their lives, as you expect all of our lives to be, is ones marked uh, by repentance. And Lord, as we struggle as believers, as your sons and daughters, we pray that you would lift up our heads, that we would uh, not begin to think, how can I make my life better? But that we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.